It wasn't a number one hit, but just like me, the song peaked at 25. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends, musicians, complainers, but most importantly, music fans tell the stories behind history's most influential albums as immortalized in the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So we'll give you some history and context on the artist and album. We'll dive into some of the actual tracks. We'll also be dropping in clips along the way. So don't worry if you're unfamiliar with the album or the artist. Now, we're all musicians. We've all made music. We know just how much goes into it. So we've got nothing but respect for anyone with the guts and dedication to do it. But it's also fun to nitpick the things you love. So just a warning, we're probably going to make fun of today's artist. Now, at the end of all this, we're going to vote on whether you actually need to hear this album before you die. And then we're going to randomly select next week's album. As usual, I want to thank you for spending some time with us today. And I think today I might wind up doing an inadvertent Ken Burns impression. We're going to be hitting the historic intersection of the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, Okies, and dare I say it, rhinestones. So buckle up. Try not to look too scared. <laughs> just act naturally. My... My name is Adam. I've been playing music for 30 years. I've played professionally for over a decade. And today we're talking about American country singer, songwriter, musician, honky tonk legend, Buck Owens and his Buckaroos and their 1965 album called I've Got a Tiger by the Tail. So let's jump right into the music to get a flavor of what we've been listening to this week. This is the title track off the album. This is called I've Got a Tiger by the Tail. I've got a tiger by the tail, it's plain to see I won't be much when you get through with me While well, I'm a losing weight and I'm turning mighty pale Looks like I've got a tiger by the tail Now that we're in that country mindset, let's throw it around the studio today, get our crew introductions by way of a tweet-length review. So first, I'm going to throw it over to Phil. Hey guys, Phil in this week. It was an interesting listen with Buck Owens. Basically what I know about Buck Owens before this was a lyric in a Creedence Clearwater song. So my tweet-length review this week is a question. Does it gent? Does it, gent? This rhythm guitar player shreds. We're going to dig into this more. <laughs> All right, Rob, let's hear it. Thanks so much, Adam. Yeah, excited to talk about Buck Owens today. Here's my tweet. Whiter than cauliflower on a snowy morning, <laughs> dorkier than Doctor Who fan fiction. I think I finally understand why Bakersfield is such a tourist draw. All right, well done. This is Adam, and my quick tweet is that Buck Owens bucks the Nashville formula of syrupy pop, and much like a bedazzled Thor, he goes on to defeat the country music machine with his honky-tonk hammer, a.k.a. the mighty Telecaster. <laughs> that he's not even wielding, right? No, well, he, he wields it at one point later on in his career. Yeah, it was an interesting week for me as well. Phil, I'm not super familiar with, I'll call it ancient country, because this is just a... <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm interested in understanding the the history here myself because it's definitely like a sound that I've heard before. But I'm gonna guess that we're gonna find that it's a very specific sound that comes from a very specific place. Yes. Spoiler alert. Well done, Phil. You <laughs> you looked ahead. Well done. <laughs> But let's throw it back around the room and, and get your general impressions. How was your week? Man, it was some mixed feelings, right? Some mixed feelings. Like some of the songs are very sweet, very fun. I was like, oh, this is great. This is, you know, I, I've heard this name. You know, maybe I understand why now. Some of these songs are just downright terrible. Just super cringy. <laughs> you put easily the worst one on the list and I'm excited to talk about that. But even some of the ones that you added for context, they're very like... They're very milk test. You know, I wonder if that's maybe a side effect of them being, you know, knocked off for 40 years and me hearing so much of that yeah. to be determined. Right, right. Yeah, I have something similar to say. I mean, ultimately, I enjoyed the week. I found the record, which I had never heard a note of before, and I don't think I had ever even heard Buck Owens's voice before. I, it's lovably dorky. There's a, there's a fun throwback element to it, but I do think the context is what I'm really looking for here to understand where this fits in the canon. And is it just that we've heard so many knockoffs? It feels like they're going by a country playbook, but maybe Adam's going to tell us that they wrote the playbook. I'm not sure. <laughs> and I did feel like I had to check my, my watch, my year dial on Spotify several times because this came out in, what, 65? Yeah. Is that right, Adam? Yes. But I felt like it could have been 55. So I suppose that reveals how little I know about the country catalog. One of the things I did, and happy to talk about it as we go, was I looked up a list of the biggest country hits of 1965 and put them on a playlist for myself that were not Buck Owens to try to get a sense of like what the contemporary country sounded like. And I assume Adam's going to tell us about all the trends that Buck bucked. It's probably not the first and last time, not the last time we're going to say Buck bucked in a row. Anyway, yeah, okay, but I, I did enjoy it. I thought Buck Owens' voice was really great. He has a manly authoritativeness mixed with a little quaver of fragility that slightly reminded me of Johnny Cash, not so much the actual timbre of their voices. Johnny Cash is much lower than him, of course, but something about that style where there's there's a little bit of vulnerability in the style. I think it's a good call. I don't think I would have said Johnny Cash, but I think that's a great comp. He sort of sounds like Elvis to me, but all the joy is like sucked out and it's replaced <laughs> with like something a little more real, you know? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe not all the joy, but you know what, I mean, what I'm trying to say here. Like it's Elvis is a showman and this is different than that, right? Well, it's, that's interesting, Rob, what you said, because I do feel like, yeah, this was recorded in 65 and it almost feels like it's a time capsule from a decade earlier. And when you look at even just pop contemporaries who were utilizing the studio and using multi-track recordings, country really had their foot planted wanting to do the, you know, we got the mic in the room and we're going, you know, one take and that's it. And so this was an interesting week for me. The album, it's stuck in a genre, obviously. But for me, I as I read more about his story, it was fun, but also somewhat depressing because when you think about, I guess, the longevity of certain music, here's a guy who in the 60s, I mean, owned the country charts. And now you flash forward to today and he's a footnote, you know, like nobody knows who Buck Owens is. So there's, there's, a, there's like a mortality that I was going through in terms of popular music and different genres in my brain and, and was both happy and a little depressed at the end of the week. 
But this week, I read a, uh, the autobiography of Buck Owens, and uh, any guesses on what the his autobiography was titled? I got a tiger by the tail. No, Buckham, <laughs> which I just thought was kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I was hoping for something like, I have no bucks left to give or something like that. (laughs) What we'll find is that his sound was specifically a push back against the Nashville machine. And something else I took away from this week is that I can't wait for us to do a James Brown episode because we know that James Brown is called the hardest working man in show business. But I think Buck Owens might give him a run for his money because this man played nonstop like 50 years. I mean, from the time he was 15, he was playing seven nights a week. We'll get into that, but it was a a newfound respect for what he did. And I did mention in my opening tweet about being bedazzled. I just, I love the style of what they were doing back then. Again, it it was almost like a time machine. It was the sixties. And if you haven't had a chance to go see what these guys looked like, I don't know if the song Rhinestone Cowboy by Glenn uh, Glenn Campbell is written about them, but they're covered in rhinestones. They're wearing bright pink, blue, and yellow suits, and it's just And they're probably like matching. It's like this oh, era absolutely. of like yeah. matching country nudie suit sort yeah. of thing, right? Yeah, cool. Or not, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, interesting. Interesting. The visual is important. It's, I was struck by the fact that it's just this whole different world that I had never entered into. <laughs> Nor yes. will I return right. watching these guys in their outfits, having these long standing TV shows for decades. It's wild. Now, before we dive into the history and background, I need a moment of your time. And no, I'm not yet hawking our merch store, but we're about a week into the new year. And fellas, I was putting together my 2024 vision board and in hopes of holding myself accountable. I'm going to say this out loud on the podcast my 2024 New Year's resolution is to get Aubrey Plaza on the podcast as a guest. You heard me. Shooting for the stars here. (laughs) Oh, man. The Delaware goat? Yes, exactly. For those who may not have picked up on it, we're from Delaware, which is a rather (laughs) small state in the Union, the first state. Mentioned it a couple of times, right. And so is one Aubrey Plaza. And she seems like somebody who would have some hard opinions on the minutia of her favorite music. And I feel like a guest spot with us could really catapult her career to the next level. So I'll keep you guys in the loop. Well, and there's only so many Delaware celebrities. So as you all, of course, know, we tried and failed to get George Thorogood on the podcast last year. (laughs) And I think Ryan Philippi is the other big... (laughs) (laughs) If I recall from high school, that was the big deal is that people knew where his parents lived. (laughs) It's like, oh, Ryan Philippi's parents. All right, and that's a great spot for us to dive into the backstory of this album and of one Buck Owens. Now, this is definitely not the oldest album we've reviewed. I think that title goes to Sinatra or Elvis, which I think was 55, 57. And Buck Owens, though, starts his career early in that era. You know, his first singles were dropped in 1956. But the album that we're talking about, I've Got a Tiger by the Tail, was actually released in 1965. So the story of Buck Owens, the music legend, both begins and ends on a long stretch of the Pacific Coast Highway in California, which we'll get into in a bit. The actual story begins when Alvis Edgar Owens Jr., which is his actual name, is born on August 12th in 1929. Wait, hold on. What's his first name? Did you say Alvis? Alvis. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I was... Not Elvis. Alvis. Yeah, that's what I thought you said. <laughs> 
I think we need to focus on that for another step. Is that, is that a real name in the world? <laughs> Hang on, let me let me let me Google the genealogy of Alvis. Reminds me of like the Bort right. license plate. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> we're all out of Bort license plates. So that means so that implies that Elvis himself was a. I guess I'm surprised at two things. One, that Elvis is itself a variation on another name called Alvis. And two, that a man born with the name Alvis didn't just roll on with that one. And by the way, it means all wise in Old Norse. So there you have Dang. it. So it is an actual name. Now, he was born in 1929. According to his mother, he was born in the back of the family's Ford Model A sedan. By the way, August 12, 1929, this is three months before the great stock market crash. So he's born right on that. That's the money spot. Because think about it. Every fucking day, your life's getting a little bit better. This dude, when he was 18, 19 years old, the war's over. He didn't fight in it. And shit's only getting better. That's the money spot. Yeah, you're right. And then he <laughs> died before everything got crazy again, right? <laughs> it's a sweet spot in there. So he was the son of sharecroppers. They moved around a lot early that's, in his that's, life. That's the money spot, too. <laughs> Sharecropping. <laughs> Yeah, you definitely, you definitely. You don't want to be a sharecropper. Right. You want to be the son of yeah. sharecroppers. You know, so he comes from a long line of farmers. His father was a farmer. His mother's father was a farmer. And the way sharecropping worked is that somebody owned the land, and then they basically lent the land out to these different families who would farm it and then give the owner half the produce or half the, the take, and then they could either keep half for themselves or sell it. Not a very glorious life. And Buck was working in the fields by about the time he could walk. Now, at age eight, the family had moved around to six different cities at this point in Texas, but they had another move up their sleeves because they soon joined the Okies, which was a term originally used to describe people specifically from Oklahoma who moved west during the Dust Bowl to try to find work and try to find farms that were actually working. But it eventually came to be a kind of an umbrella term that just meant anybody who fled the Midwest to California to escape the Dust Bowl. And as the Grapes of Wrath told us, everything was pretty much great from there happily ever after, right? California was had streets paved to gold. Absolutely. And, uh, became rich. Spoiler alert, that's not... Well, it's actually kind of how Buck's story ends. So they're, <laughs> they're heading out to California. He's eight. They squeeze into this the same 1933 Ford sedan that he was born in. And not a very luxurious trip. They literally would pull over onto the side of the road. They had a mattress and a trailer. They would put that on the side of the road in a field, and the kids would sleep on a mattress on the side of the road. Eventually, their car breaks down, and they wind up settling in Mesa, Arizona. So for the next few years, the family were day laborers, picking potatoes, tomatoes, all kinds of great produce. And it's where Buck forms this foundational memory, one that would, would drive him for the rest of his life. He remembers being cold all the time constantly cold this is a bob dylan song what you've just you've just told the story of many bob dylan songs i feel like <laughs> it's like crazy shit happens maybe it's in your control maybe it's not in your control and then there's this heavy one-liner like cold all the time it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> except he's except the dylan line's way better oh yeah it's it's much deeper yeah, so, but yeah. he he had this mantra in his head he, when i grow up i ain't gonna be cold I ain't going to be hungry. I ain't going to be poor. And in 1940, the father and the kids 
are working in these labor camps. They're traveling out to California. They called them labor camps, which feels like forced labor, but it's basically all of these farms, everyone would get together and live in kind of these like small shanty towns in California and then go off to the fields and then come back. And they, they called them labor camps. And his father would pull him out of school two weeks early and send him back to school two weeks late in order to, to get the most out of the season. And now at these labor camps is where Buck really gets his first introduction to music because everyone's depressed. And what do you do when you're depressed? You play music. So there were banjo players and fiddle players and mandolin players. And this is where he really started hearing music for the first time. You know, just to be clear, I don't think that's why they called it the Great Depression. It wasn't based on the emotional state of right. human beings in the U.S. <laughs> Although it very well could have been, it seems like. <laughs> so he's 13, Buck drops out of school. All right. And he drops out of school to help haul fruit part time. I don't know what that even means. I don't know if he was driving the truck or if he's just moving boxes around. He's still in Mesa at this point. He's in Mesa, Arizona. And he gets a mandolin for Christmas that year. And that was the spark that he needed. So we flash forward two years. He's 15 and he's already playing in honky tonks in Phoenix, making about three bucks a night, which was more than he was making in the fields. This is in 1944 at the height of the war. Buck is too young. His father was drafted, but was not sent overseas to fight. And again, this realization that he can make more money playing music than he can in the field. So he starts hustling hard on the music thing. So he gets some gigs at a tiny radio station, being a DJ, and that helped him kind of see a little bit of how the industry works, about how 45s would go around the country and get played on these tiny radio stations. Around 15, maybe a couple years older, he joins a band called Max Skillet Lickers, which was which did weekly. Yeah, they need help on their names. I know. Yeehaw. Yeah. All right. I do like a long band name, so it's got yeah. That there you go. All right. Yeah, Skillet Lickers ain't bad. Max Skillet Lickers had a radio concert every week from a gas station bandstand. And from there, they went on and kept playing around Mesa, Arizona for years. And that paid more than field work. That was like better than minimum wage. The gas station bandstand was more than picking fruit. Serious question. Does it currently pay more to be in a band than to pick lettuce? uh, It's a good question. It's a low point in the music industry right now. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure. All right. So he's 19. He's gigging in Phoenix six nights a week. $5 a night plus tips. And one thing I noticed about his autobiography is he's constantly mentioning how much he's getting paid and how much he's making at these different gigs. Again, he hated being poor. He never wanted to be poor and cold again. So every time he mentioned a new gig, he's throwing out, well, yeah, look, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 40 bucks, 50 bucks. It was just kind of funny to watch that progression. So in 1951, he's around 21, 22 years old, and he moves himself and his young family. He'd gotten married and had some kids. They moved to Bakersfield, like Rob had mentioned at the top. And this would prove to be the most important move yet of his life. Uh, Sorry, Adam. Yeah. Scenic Bakersfield. Scenic. (laughs) Now, I'm not familiar with, with California and Bakersfield. Rob, tell me a little bit about what it's like now. I think you know everything you need to know, Adam. It's not, you don't want to go there. From the descriptions in 1950, it hasn't changed much. Apologies to our Bakersfield (laughs) listeners, but uh, it's pretty low on the list of California (laughs) destinations. All right, so Bakersfield in the early 1950 is full of Okies who are working in the oil fields and farms. Translation, there were a lot of people looking to get drunk. So there's plenty of honky-tonks, plenty of bars, plenty of places to get loaded, plenty of places to play music. So that same year, 1951, 
he lands a gig at a honky-tonk called The Blackboard, where he's now playing guitar and singing with a group called Bill Woods and the Orange Blossom Playboys. Phil, another long name for you. That's a pretty good name. <laughs> That's a great name. That's a fucking great <laughs> yeah. name. I would play in that band today. Yeah. <laughs> Can we, can we define honky tonk? Have we ever defined that? Is that just a bar with music in it, or does it mean something else? So I've heard it referenced as almost a type of music and the location as well. But I'm picturing it's just rowdy electric country is what I'm associating from what I took away from the book. So Bill Woods was a guitar player and a band leader who would eventually be called the godfather of the Bakersfield sound. Buck didn't necessarily invent this Bakersfield sound, but he was the one who ran with it and really popularized it. Can you give us some style hallmarks? Is it about the backbeat? It's got a little more rock and roll in it. It's a little more rock and roll, and it's more raw. So I would say that the Bakersfield sound, as Buck described it, was basically a rejection of the Nashville sound, which some purists thought was too, too often trying to have one foot in pop and one in country. So in that Nashville sound, you've got a lot of choirs, there's string sections, it feels very produced. Buck makes it sound like the Bakersfield sound is really, it's just more raw. Yeah, I would say listening to it, like it definitely sounds a little more like in the current times in that I hear like, the hard panning, right? Yeah. Is, and all where the Nashville stuff is not really comparable to Phil Spector, but there is more of that wall of sound sort of thing. There can be a lot happening and it's, and it's not necessarily all overdubs. Okay. That makes sense. Is it so, but it's also about song topic. Cause I always heard that about the movement that came a little later, which was the outlaw country movement, the Willie Nelson's, and we, we even talked about Willie Nelson on the Redheaded Stranger episode rejecting what Nashville, the box Nashville wanted to put him in and moving to Texas. And then ultimately he became associated with this movement called Outlaw Country with Waylon Jennings and a few others. And I thought that was about subject matter, that they were more willing okay. to talk about criminal activity and things like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it sounds like Nashville was a machine and they had a formula. There are stories where Buck goes out to Nashville and he's playing at the Grand Old Opry, and it is very regimented. Like, you can't use your own amp. You can only do this. We're going to control your EQ. Your drummer can't have that cymbal or that floor tom. Yeah, yeah. Like, like there's a red X on the stage. You go stand there. There's, you have to hit your mark. Right. There's a and, silver X over there. That's where the bass player stands. <laughs> like, yeah. And, yeah, and and Buck hated that because, again, he's playing 300 nights a year. One, being a live musician like that, you kind of know what works. You know what the crowds are responding to. So you have your own idea of the thing. And then you go to some studio and the guy says, no, no, this is how, this is what people will like. It's like, screw you, man. I know, I know, because I've been playing 300 nights a year. Right, right. Now, the book I read was an autobiography, so I'm not sure how much of this is, is tall tales. But Buck said that when he was playing with the Orange Blossom Playboys, they would play from 3 p.m. until 2 a.m., 11 hours straight, seven nights a week, <laughs> no intermissions, no stopping, just going constantly. Now, that sounds kind of silly. Who knows if that's true, but the guy was not afraid of a hard day's work, I'll say. So, and these are with like two and a half minute songs. Yeah, right. So they were. <laughs> you need 600 songs a night. <laughs> <laughs> now, luckily, there's only three chords in the entire yeah. genre. So, <laughs> and all the melodies start sounding the same, too. So now somewhere in the mix of all this gigging, Buck meets some other musicians and gets a gig doing some studio work in Los Angeles. 
So jump forward two years, and in 1953, Buck gets a call to be the guitarist on a session at Capitol Records for a guy named Tommy Collins. He gets paid $41.25 for this. The song that Buck played on was called You Better Not Do That, and it was a pretty big country radio hit. So the guy who cut it, this guy named Tommy Collins, he lands a gig at the Grand Old Opry in Nashville, and he brings Buck for the show. And this is where I mentioned where Buck immediately saw the luster of Nashville kind of fall off because he goes there and he has no control over his sound, where he is on the stage, how loud he can play, all this stuff. So he was stunned that Nashville was that controlling. So it really put him off. Can we talk about Bakersfield for one more sec? Did you get the sense, Adam, that Bakersfield, I guess, is in a place in the Valley of California where there's a lot of migrant workers and farm workers and things like that. Maybe it's one of the major population centers in an area like that where people are going to bars and wanting to kick off steam. But at the same time, it seems like maybe it was musically fruitful because it's close enough to L.A., where you could pop over to L.A. for one of these sessions, right? Right. Yeah, geographically, it made sense for him. I realized, too, just to follow up on the Bakersfield comment, that Bakersfield is the kind of town in California that you write a song about to give a very specific negative feeling about your song, to tell a story. It's in the same category as Lodi. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. So Buck comes back from Nashville, and at this point, he's even more adamant about having his own sound and doing things his own way. And in 1954, he's one of the first guys to pick up a Telecaster in country music, I'll say. Other people were doing it. The Telecaster, I think, was invented in 1950. And he, at this point is hearing early rock and roll and that rockabilly sound. He wants to give that a shot. So he writes a rockabilly single and releases it under a pseudonym called Quirky Jones because he knows that these diehard country fans will run him out of town if it's discovered that our country guy is doing other genres. It felt very territorial from what he was saying of what of what the audience wanted. Was that genre distinction purely because of the Telecaster? Because I feel like we should give the audience a little more clarity there. I know this was in the early days of electric guitars at right. all, but Telecasters, which is just another Fender product, another common guitar now, the same kind of electric guitar that Bruce Springsteen plays, for instance, but it became a country music hallmark. I was definitely going to ask, like, is, if, if Buck Owens is credited with bringing the Telecaster to country music, that's a huge contribution to country <laughs> music. I mean, somebody would have done somebody it, Somebody would have right? done it at but some like, point. I, but that's, yeah, it's big. It's kind of, and it's, it, it, the characteristic, right, is that it's got a little bit of a brighter yeah. tone to it. I would honestly, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, I think a Telecaster sounds like you got a nice two by four at Home Depot and put some pickups and a nice <laughs> neck on it and play. It just sounds like it sounds like the wood that it's made out of more yeah. than any other type of guitar, in my opinion. Okay, yeah, you can hear, yeah. You can, interesting. You can hear the wood, and they they battle you a little too. I think more than any other guitar, like you have to work the Telecaster. I'd say it goes from like Telecaster to Stratocaster down to Les Paul, which basically plays itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Jimmy Page diss in there somewhere. <laughs> I still have that Telecaster that you and I, you helped me pick out when I was like 17 or 16 at Get Sam Ash. Get it. It's a great guitar. Wow. Yeah. All right. We should have brought it out for this episode. All right. So <laughs> Buck releases this single called Corky Jones. It doesn't really do much, but he wanted to just get, get the rockabilly out of his system. So he continues to do studio work in LA and 
Just for some context, too, about what these country studio sessions would look like is you would go into the studio and in three hours, you were expected to pump out four songs as in done. Like end of the day, they're cutting them to acetate. Thanks. Here's your $50. And then they turn around and in two weeks, it's they're sending it out across the country or giving it to radio stations. So there was not a lot of obsessing over studio magic and production and stuff like that that we're used to. You got to remember that I think it was the Beatles really that came along or one of the first groups that started using the studio as an instrument. It wasn't even thought of that way before, right? Maybe yeah. maybe a Phil Spector. But even then in, in a sort of subtle way where he was just it was just about mic positioning and and mixing and stuff. So the idea that the studio is just a tool to get what the live band sounds like end of story. And yeah, the songs are all fairly simple in construction. That's not a knock against them. So it, it kind of makes sense. And you're ripping them 300 nights a year. So like the band's as tight as the band's going to get. Right? They are tight. There are some, I think it's like episode one of the Buck Owen show, because later on he starts his own television show and they are tight. I mean, the harmonies are perfect. This guy, Don Rich, that we'll meet in the story in just a minute. Remarkable guitar player. Yeah, I mean, you just stick a mic in front of him and there's your album. And in general, I do think there's long been a very high bar in the country music circle for like the players. Yeah. I, I remember several years ago, the song Jolene like sort of made a major comeback, maybe like five, 10 years ago. And I remember there being a version of it played down, like the 45 played at 33 speed, you know? And the band sounds just as fucking good. Like in theory, <laughs> so tight. you'd hear them; they wouldn't sound as tight, right? Like, but no, no, they're fucking airtight. They sound better. Like, what yeah. I remember, I'm sure intrepid listeners can still look up that YouTube video of the Jolene 45 slowed down to 33. Yeah, but totally. I remember it getting posted to a bunch of music blogs as this basically could be. It's just Dolly Parton slowed down, but it could be a modern band reimagining the song like it still sounds really good i think morphine might have been referenced as <laughs> nice. somebody who would sort of do a down tempo <laughs> right, version right. of it all right so buck is in the studio again he's back in la and he's playing with a group called the farmer boys they brought him in as a guitar player and he's kind of subtly feeding them songs their producer didn't know that Buck is kind of like slipping the lyrics and chord charts and everything. And so they're recording and the engineer comes over and, you know, they finish the song and they're like, okay, who's, who's the writer who owns that. And, and Buck Owens keeps speaking. I was like, that's mine. That's mine. That's mine. So the producer gets the idea and has said, okay, maybe we've got something here. So Capitol Records signs him in 1957. And by this time he's been playing in honky tonks and bars for over a decade, virtually nonstop. Again, 250 to 300 gigs a year he's doing. And he's mostly a singer, guitar player, and now we're talking about songwriting. But I also heard an anecdote that he played sax and drums in some of these sessions. Yeah, hear? he picked them up kind of just being around them. I think he also plays a little pedal steel. He didn't play pedal steel with the Buckaroos, but he also apparently picked that up as kind of one of his additional tricks. So he gets signed and six months goes by and Buck hears nothing from Capitol Records. So he's getting a little nervous and wondering if he made a terrible decision. And not only is he not making any money, but he's prevented from making any money anywhere else in the music industry. And that's a perfect spot for our favorite segment, Buy the Numbers. So first I'm going to hit you with the number 32. That's how long this album is. <laughs> it's remarkably 
remarkably short and sweet. So they banged out like five albums in a session. Yeah, right. <laughs> a weekend session. Here's your next 10 years worth of albums. The number 10, which was the number of family members that squeezed into that Model A Ford that he was born in in order to leave Sherman, Texas and drive west to Mesa. They fit. T- I'm picturing the Beverly Hillbillies with the grandmother on top of it with like the, uh, right. <laughs> the rocking chair right. tied to the top of it. It couldn't have looked much different than that, like a total Dr. Seuss moment. I mean, they had those bench seats in the front, and I was explaining to someone the other day who seemed flabbergasted about how we used to ride in the back of the station wagon without seatbelts, and that was like a <laughs> exciting moment. I was talking to my father recently, and I was like, yeah, I rode in the back of a pickup truck like on like a highway, not like I-95 or, you know, I-5, but on a highway to a grade school baseball game with many of the players on my team and the coach drove us. And my yeah. father was like, yeah, of course. That's fine. Just hop in the truck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's enough of <laughs> just, you. You'll all kind of insulate each other. Just get, just get in the back of that pickup truck and roll around <laughs> like some, some cinder blocks. That's fine. <laughs> Can you imagine? You're in charge of getting the kids to the little league camp. <laughs> tonight adam and you're just like throw him in the back of the pickup truck yo i'm not kidding i really really like i think uh no i'm just gonna stop there (laughs) all right we're gonna move on to the number 14 which was the number of albums out of 15 that buck released between 1963 and 1967 that went to number one on the billboard country music charts dang the number four hundred thousand. That's how much money he made each year for 17 years from 69 to 86 starring in Hee Haw. That must have felt really good after making like, you know, after feeling good about three bucks yeah, right. like for the all night gig. Right? It seemed like he didn't care. He reached a point in his career. Well, I think it was in 1969 is when he jumped into Hee Haw. And he said a lot of people you know, couldn't take him seriously anymore. This megastar lowered himself to doing these cheesy puns and jokes and everything. And he's just like, yo, give me that money, man. He's like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to be poor, man. I'm never going to be poor. Give it to me. And it just sounds like he didn't care. All right. And the final number here is 18. And that's the number of number one hits on Billboard country music charts that he had between 63 and 69. Dang. So let's jump back in, all right? So six months go by, and Capitol Records eventually brings Buck into the studio, and they tell him all about the 1001 Album Complaints Patreon page, and they told him not to worry, (laughs) and that this podcast will always be available and free but that the 1001 crew wanted to give people an opportunity to drop some love and appreciation for all the hard work and research that goes into every episode of this show. Buck said that? <laughs> he did. It was the damnedest thing. <laughs> and Buck said, you're fucking kidding me. Right. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Because he was physically unable to curse without invoking his own nickname. <laughs> so yeah, we've got our Patreon set up. People can give us five bucks a month. Think of it like buying us a beer or drop us a one-time tip or do nothing and keep enjoying what we hope is a -a one-of-a-kind podcast experience. Either way, thanks for listening. All right, so now Buck is with Capital and they cut a song called Come Back, which we'll drop a little bit of right here. Sit at home and walk the floor and hope you'll knock on my door. I miss 
All right, now Buck is pissed. He didn't curse, but he's pissed. <laughs> he absolutely hates this. He doesn't even want to release it. He can't stand the treatment that they did to it. Buck said that they'd used a group that was trying to sound like the Jordanaires, who were a gospel group that sang on those early Elvis records. They sounded good with Elvis, but didn't make sense to have them on my record, is what Buck said. So it's no surprise to everyone that they were trying to basically recreate Elvis. Heartbreak Hotel was released in 56, and that sold. And so they wanted to recreate that. So Buck, again, he called the Nashville sound. He said it was, it was syrupy. You know, there were string sections. It was very heavy handed that they were trying to get a pop crossover. And ultimately they were trying to elevate country music to get past the hay bales, as he said, which I thought was funny. Hold on. Doesn't he, does, isn't he trying to get that bread? I know. Like, why, well, that's why, the, why would he be against this? Yeah. That's maybe it wasn't until he really got his real taste of money after he started getting some singles that he was like, okay, I have no, I have no scruples. I'll do whatever you need. <laughs> <laughs> so Capitol does release this song and it bombs. And after that, that bombed, he's still gigging. He's selling ads on a radio station. And just by gigging and those, the radio gig, he was making $82 a week which was the most he'd, he'd ever made in his life, and none of that was coming from Capitol Records. Now, shortly thereafter, Dusty Rhodes, the pedal steel player, not the wrestler. <laughs> Wait, hold on, because I've already been thinking about the honky-tonk man this right. entire podcast. <laughs> and now you're bringing in Dusty Rhodes? <laughs> which is, by the way, a great country band name or song. Oh, totally. <laughs> so now, unbeknownst to Buck, Dusty Rhodes hires a fiddle player, a guy named Donald Eugene Ulrich, a.k.a. Don Rich, who was really the other half of this Buck Owens story. Now, Don is super young. Don is only a junior in high school when he joins the band. He's like 16 or 17 years old, and Buck would actually drive like a half hour to get him every day from school to bring him into the rehearsal space for band practice. So at this point, Buck is pretty miserable that he's making no money with Capitol, and he sends a letter to Capitol Records and says, you know, I'm out. And uh, I want to part ways. And well, that's not the way contracts work. So you can't just politely bow out of it. But Capital says, look, we'll let you do what you want. You can produce, you can write the songs you want, and, and we'll support you. So they cut a song called Second Fiddle that made it up to number 24 on the country charts. And it was high enough for Capital Records to ask him to keep making more. There's kind of this magical moment that Buck talks about in the book where they're driving from Tacoma to LA somewhat routinely for a radio gig and for studio work. And the band is in the car and Dusty Rhodes is driving and he asked Don, the new guy, to sing along some harmonies with Buck. And so Buck starts singing, Don chimes in and this light goes off and Buck realizes we've got something here. This is amazing. This guy's voice is fantastic. He's a great player. Uh, we get along well. And so it was kind of a key moment in the band's evolution. Hey, hold on. Did you say Tacoma, Washington? Yeah. That's got to be like a 20-hour drive <laughs> in my modern car going 90 miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like in the uh, the Model T or whatever the heck they were driving with Granny <laughs> on the roof? a three-week drive. Well, that's actually, when they were up in Tacoma, that's where they had another little drive-by with Loretta Lynn. Loretta Lynn was discovered up there. 
So if you recall, oh. Loretta Lynn was driving around the country trying to get her recording career off the ground, and she showed up and actually played on this show that Buck Owens was hosting in Tacoma. Wild. All right, so in 1960, after a TV appearance in Nashville, Buck decides that he's finally done with Nashville and he wants to go back to Bakersfield. And people think he's crazy and all the folks in Nashville are like, you can't cut a number one country record outside of Nashville. You're nuts. Go ahead, ruin your career. All right, so now kind of a rapid fire of, of the years leading up to this album. So in 1961, they got a gig opening for the Johnny Cash show, which was a touring show that Johnny Cash was doing. And people loved him and he started building a fan base. Yeah, I think like June Carter and the Carter family were like part of it. It was like a festival. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they would do that. They would tour around the country with five or six acts, you know? Yep. Think of like, you know, the, all day sort of thing. The yeah. new kids on the block going out with six other washed up bands yeah. and uh, <laughs> don't, don't bring in NYKTOBTKY. All right, 1962. Buck decides to put together his own permanent band instead of just playing with these random studio guys. And Merle Haggard, who was sitting in and playing bass for them for a couple of weeks, suggested the name Buck Owens and the Buckaroos. And it stuck. And this is where around 61, 62 is where they're playing 300 gigs a year. So they're getting really tight with this, with this newly formed band. 1963, Act Naturally becomes Buck's first number one song. Released as a single, all those years of struggle and hard work finally paid off. And it sounds silly, but they made a big deal. I watched a documentary about him, and there was a moment in 1963 where both Buck Owens and Don Rich each were playing a Telecaster on stage, and people were, like, losing their minds. Like, people were running out from backstage, like, what the hell is that sound? It's like, well, it's just, it's two. There's two Telecasters <laughs> being played at once instead of one, but apparently it was a big deal. Sounds kind of silly now, but potentially breaking some new ground in that electrified country sound, which it could have been that at that moment, there was not an acoustic guitar being played in a country song, and that could have been a really big deal at the time. All right, so 1965, another key year because the Beatles covered Act Naturally which was huge. Buck was, was definitely a Beatles fan. Couldn't really say that, though, because, again, these country purists, his fan base was so into country that if you strayed at all, they were likely to, again, kind of... That would be... That makes no sense. I know. Me. That would be like if Jay-Z covered one of my band's songs, and I was like, I can't even say that's cool because <laughs> people will disrespect me. <laughs> well, it might explain why, and I'm just thinking about this now, generationally... If your country fan base is so dedicated and they're threatening you that if you play or sound different, we're going to leave you and they're all old people, then maybe you do stay locked in, Rob, to your point, for a decade, a sound that started yeah. in 1955 and you don't want to quote unquote alienate people. So you stick with, with what worked. I think though, there's always that pressure on artists that they might, they're in danger of alienating a fan base that they gained through a certain sound if they were to change that sound. Sure. Now, the veracity of those different fan bases throughout time may have shifted, but there's always, I'm just pointing out that anyone who has any even a dose of fame feels some version of that. And that's why we give extra credit, I feel, to artists who push back against that like the Beatles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's 1964. Buck records, I've got a tiger by the tail at the height of his popularity. And as a single, 
it was actually a crossover success on the pop charts. It wasn't a number one hit, but just like me, the song peaked at 25. So now before we <laughs> jump into the songs, <laughs> I want to tell you a little bit about Buck before we jump in, because he obviously had a relatively long life after this album came out. Buck was on his way up, no longer afraid of being poor, and by the mid-60s, he was one of the richest country singers of that era and basically became a gentleman rancher and was buying up radio stations all over the place out west. He would go on to release another 28 studio albums after I've Got a Tiger by the Tail. He also started his own publishing company. He built a recording studio and helped turn Bakersfield into an independent country music city. That's what he said. I'm not sure how true that is. I looked at some of the, again, I'm not a country guy. I I recognized one name, which was Dwight Yoakam. Apparently he came out of the Bakersfield area and kind of embraced that sound. He helped Buck Owens come out of retirement at a certain point and do shows together, and they like cut an album together in the 90s, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. You also dropped the name Merle Haggard, isn't he? Is he a... I think he might be. Yeah, I think think Phil might have that right, yeah. So in addition to that, he gets his own TV show called The Buck Owens Show, and like I said earlier, he started hosting primetime Hee Haw. And again, he lost a lot of his truest fans... People just couldn't take him seriously anymore and thought he sold out. All right, now, July 17th, 1974, Don Rich dies in a motorcycle crash on the PCH in California, kind of ending the journey where it began. And Buck was devastated, was never the same. He called Don Rich his soulmate at one point. And he said uh, he was like a, a brother, a son, and a best friend. And there was a quote where he said, something I never said before, maybe I couldn't, but I think my music life ended when Don died. I carried on and I existed, but the real joy and love, the real lightning and thunder is gone forever. Yeah, that's tragic for sure. Also, I mean, they were born like 20 years apart too. Like that's an unlikely friendship, especially to like find that kind of bond. Totally, yeah. So Owens would never really recover from this, but... Rob, like you said, he kind of you know came out of retirement with Dwight Yoakam, I think in the 90s, and played some gigs. But Buck Owens dies in 2006 at the age of 76. All right. On that note, let's jump into some music here. So we're going to jump back into the opening and the title track of this album. This one is called I've Got a Tiger by the Tail. I've got a tiger by the tail, it's plain to see I won't be much when you get through with me Well, I'm a losing weight and I turn it mighty pale Looks like I've got a tiger by the tail Well, I thought the day I met you, you were meek as a lamb just the kind to fit my dreams and plans. Now the pace we're living. So, is there a special name for when songs start like this, with this sort of slowed down? The song's about to start, people. <laughs> Sing along element that gets you. Do you get what I'm saying? Is that is there a name, a musical term for that? 
I don't know. I, I, I It's a good question because like when, when the song ends, like where you sort of lose time, we call it like retard, right? Well, right. So there's got to be a phrase for it, right? But no, I don't know. And it's a good point. Like it's, it's a thing. It feels like there should be. I've had this one running through my head all day. You know, I got to give credit where credit's due. I mean... I think I think part of the trick of an opening like that is it really does encourage you subconsciously to sing along. It you know it makes you feel like you're a part of something. So I think it's it's very catchy, and I believe Phil already alluded to it. But I wrote down for this song the discipline of the rhythm guitar player in my right ear. <laughs> totally, totally, yeah, man. He, I, I don't know if that's Buck or Don, but like it would he, that would be Buck because Don is lead. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's times towards the end of the song he's going, he goes, like he's like he's starting a fucking yeah. airplane yeah. or something, you know? It's <laughs> totally. like, Start that song <laughs> Yeah, totally. It's nuanced, it's consistent, but it also kind of kicks. And like you said, yeah, he he varies it up just subtly. Discipline's a great word too, because it's not like showy at all. He's, you know, so yeah, it's cool. Very cool. It's cool to have stereo mixes available as well, because I guarantee this was released on mono in 1964, or 65, rather. So trying to think about like what you would have lost in terms of the nuances in a, in a mono mm-hmm. mix, I, I think is interesting. Yeah, maybe, maybe you're going to get into more of this, Adam, but I mean, in terms of why this record, is, are we saying that this was the breakout record, or is this more the victory lap that Buck Owens is taking after the Beatles cover Act Naturally and kind of at the end, his last great record. Which which of those do you think it is? I think this is the breakout. Because even my dad, who, when he met my mom, so my, my parents were in rock bands in, in the 70s, and my dad sometimes teases my mom because when he met her, she was listening to Buck Owens and the Buckaroos, and he dragged her into evil rock and roll. And this is the go-to album that they both talk about. And this song specifically. So I feel like this was his big takeoff. Yeah, it it does feel like a playbook for how to craft a country song and a country production. But that said, it's executed really, really well. This is something else we've brought up. And I kind of feel this about some of the songs on this record. But this one in particular, it's two minutes and like 10 seconds long. uh, And it feels longer than that. Like they kind (laughs) of pack a lot of content in, right? You want the song to be playing again and again in your head and to have the audience lusting for more. The last thing you want, and I know we complain about it all the time, and our listeners are probably tired of hearing it, but the last thing you want is for your listeners to go, this has gone on too long. (laughs) Which again, we hope they're not saying about any of our episodes. It's, (laughs) It's very meta. To see this song live, so I mentioned that Buck had a TV show called The Buck Owens Show, and on episode one, it's a variety show, so it's they do three or four songs, and they bring on a woman or a guy, and they sing a song. And Don Rich is a phenomenal guitar player. Specifically on this song, on the live version that I watched, he do, he's doing like that hybrid picking thing, mm-hmm. which if you're oh, not yeah. a guitar player, some people call it chicken picking, because yep. you're utilizing not just your hand to strum or the pick you know, a single note, but, but he's using multiple fingers at the same time to get a kind of sound and he just crushes it. So I, I was, I didn't really appreciate the musicianship until I saw this one live. You're using the pick and your fingers. Yes. Thank fluidly, you. Yeah. Right. While mm-hmm. your fingers continue to hold the pick. So it is definitely challenging, but you get this different level of attack on the strings that you choose to pick versus the ones you choose to 
pluck with your fingers. And it, it always reminds me a little bit, or one of the techniques people use with it is like a, they call it a banjo roll where mm-hmm. you can do like a little triplet yeah, where the first one is totally. picked mm-hmm. and the next two are plucked. I've seen this demo. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, Rob. I think you nailed it. And and I, and I think with, there's a very specific thing with the chicken picking and you've touched on it with the, like the, the roll is like, there's a rhythm to it. That's different but than gonna, like, yeah. yeah, there's a rhythm to it. That's different than like finger style. You could argue like, Oh, this is just like a finger style thing, but it's a very specific, you know, like, and, and I like the way you described the different attacks that you get like some notes don't pop and others do and it's very specific i know that don and buck had been singing together prior to this album i think their voices mesh really well together i think they they almost sound like the same person but are just different enough to help you differentiate and i I think they sound great together all right we're going to move on to the next song on our focus list this song is called wham bam First thing is matrimony, next thing is alimony. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, I'll be on my way. I'm just too young to get married, you see. All right, now I went down an internet rabbit hole trying to find out the origin (laughs) of Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am because there's no way these guys are talking about sex in this song. But... I saw. One. I strongly disagree. <laughs> oh, you think so? All right, all right. Well, let's see. So, in 1948, it was referenced in a play called Mister Roberts, where a sailor uses the phrase. But going back even further, in 1912, they said that a "thank you, ma'am" was essentially a speed bump. Is that as as cars were becoming, you know, more popular, they were putting speed bumps in the rows, and they would call them "thank you, ma'ams" for whatever reason. So the idea is that you would hit it and it would go wham, bam, back tires, thank you, ma'am, and you would just move on with your day. And so that's potentially where the phrase comes from. Interesting. Can we, this guy's afraid of rice? Did you guys pick up on that? No. (laughs) I (laughs) I should have read the words, damn it. He says, I'm not the kind of guy to buy a ring. I'm afraid of wedding bells and rice and things. (laughs) I'm afraid of wedding bells and rice and things. I'm just a Yeah, well, you know, oh, throwing rice after the wedding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's Is what that he it? means, but I thought right. it came off a little weird. And <laughs> and thank just thanks. My other observation about the whole point of the song is this guy's gay, right? right. That's a, you know what? This is like a it's a gay yeah. anthem. Yeah. You, you know, actually it's like an interesting point. This is the only song on the record that is sang by a different vocalist. So yeah. it, it is possible. Yeah. That, you know, you this mean is by like his a, long-term friend whose death he never got over for some reason? And called his soulmate? Yo. All right. Expose. I, I'm going to have to do some more Googling. I'm sure the hardcore country fans will love this. Right. <laughs> I'm getting death threats right now. This is easily the worst song I have heard on the podcast this year. This is taking <laughs> Buffalo Stance territory for 23 for me. <laughs> well, this is okay. going to be released in 24. Wow. Yeah, yeah, this it's is bold. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Early contender. 
for worst of. Yeah, yeah. Early contender for worst of 24. <laughs> Wham, bam. <laughs> well, it sucks because Don Rich, I think he's a really nice voice, but he does this thing that I can only describe as gill. Like he does this. <laughs> totally. Yes. He does a yes. little bit of like a goofy, like not just the adjective, but goofy the character. He does this goofy voice. And it's such a turnoff because, again, I think the guy has uh, an absolutely wonderful voice. It didn't bump me as much as it as Phil. I just thought it was a funny, silly song. You know, it kind of rolled off my back. But you're right about the yuck. That's a very conscious singing style, I think, because I thought it popped up in a, another song we're not going to talk about, Trouble in Me has that same element to it where it looks like they're, it feels like they're preparing for the first word. In the line with this <laughs> <loogie. laughs> All right, let's move on to our next song on our focus list. This one is called Memphis. Give me Memphis, Tennessee Help me find a party Try to get in touch with me She could not leave her number But I know a place to call Cause my uncle took the message And he wrote it on the wall Help me Did this sound completely like it came from a different album and a different band and a different decade. Like it, it, the intro to this song, I felt like could have been on like anything. Like <laughs> I had no idea what was going to happen when the guitar came out. I was like, anything could happen. Like when the band drops and it's coming. <laughs> well, so I know it from Chuck Berry, of course, because as a real youngin, I had the great 28 Chuck Berry compilation. And so it feels like one of those examples of, hey, you know that hip music kids are listening to? What if we made it Whoa. significantly less cool? <laughs> but, but that said, when I went back and listened to the Chuck Berry version, that one is also really subdued. Long distance information, give me Memphis, Tennessee. Help me find the party, try to get in touch with me. Even for Chuck Berry, the bass is kind of doing a lot in that one. But the Chuck Berry Memphis is, is pretty pretty chill. It's, it almost sounds like someone's banging on boxes instead of drums. It doesn't have any ripping guitar solos in it. Like it's so so in a way they kind of rocked it up. Okay. I noted that this was the only song on the album where I could actually hear the bass. I mean, I know in the background you can kind of hear the bass thumping, but I couldn't actually hear any bass notes until this song. And maybe that's because they were dipping their foot into a little bit of the rock and roll and thought, hey, what are the, what are those rock guys Or maybe doing? it could be because they heard that Chuck Berry one. And I think the bass is like weirdly the most prominent thing on that recording when it's not normally okay. for Chuck Berry songs either. Right. Actually, Adam, you make a good point. Like this might be electric bass compared to the other tracks, which is probably stand up. Well, when they, at least in the live on the TV show, the backup band, the guy was playing an electric bass, like holding it. It wasn't an upright. And maybe there's there, hmm. maybe there's another difference between the Bakersfield sound. Yeah. Yeah. If you listen to Tiger by the Tail, it definitely like, like it has that like pith, pith. Like you can tell the bass is in there, but mm -hmm. like you're saying, it's kind of it's kind of lost in the recording approach, right? Yeah. Or just yeah, you know, the technology. Whereas Memphis doesn't have that problem at all, right? That bass is pumping, right? So 
I've got to imagine that that's, that's a, an electric bass. Buck always said that he liked Chuck Berry as well. He did like the rock and roll sound. He said that if Chuck Berry was white, he would have been a country guy. Because if you look at like, you know, the chord patterns are kind of the same, the content, you know, if you think about Johnny Be Good, you read those words out, that could be a country song, really. It's about a poor kid who picks up a guitar. This was also very rock and roll that there are two Telecasters going during the solo. So I think maybe they had, because there's an acoustic guitar as well, but I think maybe they had somebody else playing a Telecaster during the solo. All right, let's move on to the last song on our focus list. We're going to round it out with a song called Streets of Laredo. As I walked out in the streets of Laredo As I walked out in Laredo one day I spied a young cowboy all wrapped in white also known as the Dying Cowboy Song. I like that it's a traditional, but actually I think the writing here is weirdly clumsy for one of these songs that's been covered by a million artists. And I'm pretty sure that Marty Robbins was purposefully referencing this song when he he kind of rewrote it as Old El Paso. Or what's that song called? I think it's just called El Paso. That famous uh, Marty Robbins tune. You must know it, right? But it has the same kind of cadence as this tune. So one other observation. This is a third lead singer, right? And the bass player. That's right. The bass player does this song. Audience, how great is it when the bass player also (laughs) has a bass registered (laughs) voice? So beat the drum slowly play. What are the chances? There's no objective reason that those two things (laughs) should go together. Other than what cartoons tell us, (laughs) but it's great. (laughs) Like, no, no. Here's the other thing, though, Rob. Is this evidence of, like, Oprah style, the secret? like actually manifesting <laughs> in the universe cuz right. you're just you're just thinking about the bass so much that right, you can right, just right. produce it you can right. manifest it yourself something else i like about this song right it's like it's very simple and i think it gets back to the very direct recording style right just pop a microphone the opening of this song is an in tune guitar playing what i presume is an e chord dun, dun, could dun, be an dun, dun, dun. but it's literally just like it's like a man sits down and he says is this guitar in tune he slowly <laughs> plays all six strings he says yes, yes. it is in tune then the song begins <laughs> very true yeah so so i like that element of this song i was like huh all right right, that's gonna do it for our focus list what we do now on the show is we throw it around the studio to get those crucial votes on whether you actually need to hear buck owens i've got a tiger by the tail before you die let's throw it over to phil so this was an interesting week you know the songs are all over the map some of them are great some of them i think are unlistenably dated. But I think after the conversation today, I'm going to go, yes. I think, Adam, you've made a great case for the Rick's history of Buck Owens. And I just think, you know, maybe maybe you find something that you like here. You know, Don Rich is a great player. I don't know how much I'm going to go back to this, but I think, you know, this is worth giving it a listen if you're into exploring new music. So that's a yes from me. 
All right. Rob, what do you got? You know, it's hard. It's a hard vote because I feel like I'm going against the Beatles with this one. But (laughs) I have to say no. I enjoyed the week. I'm certainly glad I learned about Buck Owens and listened to this. And Adam's explanations were, were certainly interesting. But I feel like it's one of those instances where you can get this and I think better versions of the songwriting in other places, a lot of other places in the musical canon. And you might be better off listening to our episode instead of listening <laughs> to the record itself. So uh, Buck Owens, you seem like a really cool guy. I respect you, but I don't think it's a must listen. All right. That's a no from Rob. So it comes down to me. And I did ultimately enjoy this week. I think learning more about Don and Buck, I kind of fell in love with them and I fell in love with his story. And while I will not be going back to the well of ancient country a whole lot, I'm super happy I did. And I do think that he's a legend and I I think you need to hear a little bit of this and it's only 30 minutes. So it's a pretty easy pill to swallow. So I'm going to say yes. And that makes it a go. So congratulations, Buck Owens and Don Rich and the rest of your band. It is a yes. You should go hear this album before you die. All right, now don't forget that we've got a week to prepare and an hour to share. So if there's anything we got wrong, please let us know. We started this podcast to learn more about music and the people who make it. And we found that you, the listeners, have been a huge source of insight. So please write in to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com with your own complaints, corrections, or attaboys. And on that note, let's throw it over to Rob, who's got his hand in the mailbag, to see if anyone has taken our advice and written in. Thanks so much, Adam. Yes, in fact, they have. We got one here from Rosemary from Maryland, a female listener. All right. Rosemary writes, Sup, guys. I just wanted to say that I quite literally screamed with excitement the second I heard you utter the name Fleet Foxes. (laughs) Very excited. They're my favorite band. I've been listening for almost a decade now. I've been listening to the podcast for going on six months, sometimes listening to several episodes in a day. So I'm very, very, very stoked for the Fleet Foxes episode. And I, I guess she hasn't listened to it yet, but she says, I hope you get into the Brian Wilson influence and some of Robin's creative choices there and about why Father John Misty left the group. He seems like a little bit of an asshole. Well, I'd like to learn more about that myself, Rosemary. We didn't get into that, sadly, as you'll know at this point by the time I read your missive. But I'm glad that we can uh, satisfy some of these modern indie urges and we appreciate you writing in. Tell us more. Uh, give us some commentary after you listen to the Fleet Foxes episode, please. Nice. Thanks, Rosemary. And Maryland's really close to Delaware, too. So there you go. You got to... <laughs> so if you happen to know Aubrey Plaza or someone who knows her, <laughs> you can help us there as well. Okay, we have one more commentary on the Steely Dan episodes. Oh, nice. Uh, that came out recently on Camp by a Thrill. Justin writes in, another great show. But what can be really said about the Dan other than to heap praise on one of music's greatest acts? True to stereotype, I never got deep into them until I became a dad. <laughs> and by some miracle, as soon as my daughter was born, I went far down the damn wormhole and have never looked back. So true. He wanted to, he's so true, right? He yeah. wanted to tell us that the beginning of Ricky Don't Lose That Number is an interpolation of Song from My Father by Horace Silver, the jazz tune. 
you know, I think we actually did bring that up on air, but we, I might have cut it from the final edit because I couldn't think of the name or something like that. But here's Justin Dan explaining to us. We appreciate it. His, his, so wait, 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 wait. what I actually want to point out though here is he is preempting my shit talking on the forthcoming pretzel logic. <laughs> 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 so I appreciate. Right. I, I, I like this guy already. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, okay. So so thank you for writing in. We love hearing those little tidbits. Help us get what we couldn't get off of the tip of our tongues or correct us or, or give us, as Adam said, some attaboys. Write to us any old time with any old thing at 1001 Album Complaints at Gmail. Rob, did you say Dan-splaining? <laughs> if so, yes, that's that right, needs Adam, to yes. be a t-shirt or a meme. If it's not yet, that is absolutely genius. <laughs> to be fair, that was in Justin's email. So oh my credit God, all right, credit. Due. The t-shirt will just say Dan Splaining with Justin, hyphen Justin at the bottom. Exactly. All right, I'm, Rob, I'm throwing it right back over to you to get our homework assignment for next week. Ah, uh, yes, the Albinator. It's on the road with me right now. As you all can see, I'm not in my normal locale, and it's been tanning a hide <laughs> over by the dinner bell. Why didn't you just and- give that thing back to fucking Tom? Can't he, can't he fucking... You know what? Next time we should make him mailbag in the next one. Oh, that's good. That's a good point. That's, that's good. a good point, yeah. <laughs> so let's spin this bad boy up and see what our homework is for next week. Without further ado, drum roll, please. Next week, we shall be listening to... The band is called Eagles... No the, and the album is called Hotel California. <laughs> I've heard of that. Oh my God! Spoiler alert: greatest album of all time. Done. All right, I'm voting. I'm gonna pack this has it some in. hit songs on it, I believe. <laughs> Just a couple. <laughs> oh wow, that's that's well, a. That's a big one, man. Man, that'll I, be I, fun. I just want to start talking right now. I know, I don't right? You want to listen to the album again? <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I've never listened to this album. Of course, I've heard the song Hotel California, sure. but I have no idea what's on here and never listened to another oh, one. So I can't excited. wait to hear for once. Yeah. The, the yeah. roles are reversed where I actually know every second of this album by heart, and, and Rob, you don't, which is crazy. Yeah, I think songs that you'll absolutely know, Rob, are you'll def- it definitely has Hotel California, Life in the Fast Lane, and it's got one more. W- it's got like time, a sad, you know. yeah, it's got a sad song about the Earth dying. What's that one? Uh, she came from Providence, uh, Last Resort, yeah. yeah, yeah, Last Resort, yeah, yeah. <laughs> about the Earth dying. Yeah, that's, okay. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens next week. Guys. I'm gonna go listen to it right now. All right, that's gonna do it for us. This week, we've got our homework assignments. It's Eagles Hotel California. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Adam. I'm Phil. And I'm Rob. Boosh. <laughs>